The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the Gospel according to St. John, in chapter 5, verses 31 to 35. Verses 31 to 35, in the fifth chapter of the Gospel according to St. John. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. You sent unto John, and he bear witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from men, but these things I say, that ye might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. Now, I really want to call attention this evening to that last verse, the 35th verse in this fifth chapter of John's Gospel. He was a burning and a shining light, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. Here I would remind you again, our Lord is dealing with these Jews who stumbled at the fact that he healed men on the Sabbath day. They were blind to his glory, they were blind even to the miracle. They were so bound by their legalism and by their narrowness that they missed the wonder and the splendor. But our Lord, in spite of that, persisted in speaking with them, trying to win them. He made marvelous statements about himself and his relationship to God the Father, but still they don't see it. And here he goes a step further and tries, as it were, to meet them on their own ground. He says, I know that if I bear witness of myself that you will regard my witness as not being true. Because it was their custom to say that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, everything should be established. So he says, there is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness that he witnesseth of me is true. Now that's a reference to God. How has God witnessed to him? Well, he answers the question by saying, you, he says, you yourselves, sent unto John the Baptist, and he bare witness unto the truth. Now, they'd actually done that. You'll find the account of it in the first chapter of this gospel according to John. How they sent a deputation to John saying, Art thou the Christ? Who art thou? And John made answer to them. Our Lord reminds them of that. You sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. But he says, I... Receive no, no testimony from men, but these things I say that you might be saved. That's why he's reminded them of the testimony of John the Baptist. And we've been going through their testimony. John testified that Jesus of Nazareth was the Son of God. He said he's the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He said he is the one that baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. He said he is the one that is going to judge the world in righteousness, whose fan is in his hand, and he will truly purge his flaw and gather the wheat into the garner, but the chaff he will burn with fire 
unquenchable. He said, there is the witness of John. Why don't you believe it? Ah, he says, I'll remind you. John was a burning and a shining light. And you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. Now I say this is the thing to which I want to call attention this evening. It's a most important statement. Our Lord obviously made it with a very definite object and intention in his mind. It's a most interesting and a most important statement. Now, actually, first and foremost, it is a literal statement, of course, of fact. When John the Baptist first began his ministry, it was true to say of the Jews that they did for a while rejoice in him and in his ministry and in his teaching. As our Lord says, you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But it didn't last very long. They soon turned their backs upon him. And as we were reminded in that chapter we read at the beginning, they began to denounce him, saying, He hath a devil. They thought he was some kind of a madman, devil-possessed. So that first and foremost, our Lord is calling attention to a literal fact, to something that actually happened in the realm of history. But I believe that he has another object in his mind. And that is that he knew full well as he was speaking that precisely the same thing was true of himself also. And that is, of course, the thing that we find recorded in the pages of the four Gospels. This particular day, Sunday, on which we're meeting is generally called Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday reminds us above everything else of this, doesn't it? Of the triumphal entry of the Lord Jesus Christ into the city of Jerusalem. With the people acclaiming him and shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna in the highest. And they cut down branches from the palm trees and strewed them on the road. And waved them in their hands and put their clothes on the ass's colt for him to ride on. Ah, he's entering as if he were a king. But we know, don't we, that in a few days, the very selfsame people were shouting out, saying, Away with him, crucify him. And saying to Pilate, who was offering them, One prisoner, it was the custom to set one prisoner at liberty, you remember, at that time. And Pilate said, Who shall I release unto you? Shall I release to you Jesus of Nazareth? They said, No. Release unto us Barabbas, who was a robber and who had been arrested and condemned because of robbery. They said, not this man, but Barabbas. The crowd, instigated by the rulers, said, away with him, crucify this Jesus. They wanted Barabbas. Now I say that I have no doubt at all that our Lord had all that in his mind as he was speaking these words here to these Jews that uh, as it had been true in the case of John the Baptist, that the people in general were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. The same thing was going to be true of his own life and of his own ministry. And it's that I want to hold uh, particularly before you this evening on this particular Sunday. And I want to do so, of course, for this general reason, that this is something that is of most urgent importance 
for us. For unless we are still by nature exactly the same as these people who treated John the Baptist like this, who treated the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, like that, human nature hasn't changed. Human nature is still the same. And therefore, the element or the principle that was in these people is in us. And we are confronted by this terrible danger. And that is why I'm calling your attention to it. The great message, I say, of Palm Sunday and of this time of the year and the following day, the days that are coming, is the message of this appalling possibility that is in our human nature, thus to change suddenly and violently and to go back upon something that we once had affirmed and once had professed. You were willing for a season to rejoice in his light, but now you've gone back on it, and you're dismissing him and denouncing him. I say there is nothing, therefore, that is more important for us than just this very thing. The most important thing in life for all of us is to know exactly where we stand, to know exactly what we believe. Never was it more urgent for us to do so. How uncertain life has become. How uncertain is our whole world. And the great message of the Bible is everywhere the urgency of knowing exactly where we stand with respect to these matters. And therefore, I want to take this statement of our Lord and hold it before you this evening in order that we all may judge ourselves by it and make sure that we know in whom we have believed and what we believe. Very well, I start by laying down certain principles which seem to me to be quite obvious on the very surface of this statement. Here is the first. Religion has a kind of general appeal which is not of necessity saving. It's obvious from this statement, isn't it, that religion, I'm putting it generally, may interest us and attract us and appeal to us and yet finally be of no value to us whatsoever. It's here, isn't it? You were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. It's clear that John the Baptist and his ministry had made an appeal to these people. I therefore deduce that principle, that there is that in religion which has the power to do this. There is a kind of general, vague, indefinite appeal, which in the end proves to be perfectly useless, quite valueless. But nevertheless, it is there. Now we've got to realize this because if we are going to rely upon that general interest and that general appeal, we may very well find ourselves in the position of these people. Now, I'm emphasizing this because there are some people who seem to think that there are only two groups of people in the world. Those who say that this gospel is everything to them and the others who are not interested in it at all and never have had an interest in it at all. But you know, it isn't scriptural to speak like that. The scriptures say there's a third position. And that is the position of people who are interested in religion for a while. 
It's here in the scripture. Our Lord taught that, didn't he? In the parable of the sower. He talks about the seed, you remember, that uh, fell onto that stony ground. It sprang up at once. There seemed to be a response, but it didn't last. But there was a response, remember. In the parable, you haven't merely got the contrast between the seed that was picked up at once by the birds and that which brought forth a hundredfold. Oh no, there are these other categories. Then there was the seed that fell, you remember, into the thorny places. And again it sprang up, but it was choked eventually by these thorns and weeds which destroyed the life. Temporary believers, men and women like these who are interested for a season, and ready to rejoice in it for a season. It is because I say of this dread possibility. And it's there standing on the surface of the New Testament. It's there, I say, in the crowd that acclaimed the Lord on the Palm Sunday and then denied him and said away with him. It's there in the 6th of John where we find people crowding after him because of his miracle of feeding the 5,000. And then when he goes on preaching... We are told this, that many of his disciples at that point went back and walked no more with him. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can bear it? Very well. I therefore lay down that principle. There is such a thing as being influenced by the general appeal of religion. But it's of no final value. Secondly, is it not amazing to notice how far one can go under the influence of this general appeal and yet in the end to have nothing? You notice that the terms our Lord uses are rejoice. It wasn't merely that they said, well, he's rather an interesting preacher. Oh, we'll go and listen to him again sometime. No, no, they rejoice. They were really taken up by it. And rejoiced, says our Lord, in, in this, in his light. It really was an interest in the teaching and the preaching and the message, as I'm going to show you. Now I see it's an astounding and an alarming thing to realize that one can go as far as that as to rejoice in the light and the teaching. But yet it's only for a season. It doesn't avail in the end. It's no good at all. Oh, it reminds one of the saying, doesn't it? So near, and yet so far. And yet, you see, in terms of the scripture, these things are of vital importance. It's no value at all to be so near unless you're there. You can be on the doorstep of a house but you're still as much outside the house as a man who's a hundred miles away. You're not in the house, so near, and yet so far. Isn't it amazing how far one can go along this line and yet never really get there? That's the thing that's emphasized here, and that brings me to my third and last general principle. The true experience, therefore, the real thing, is the one that continues, that lasts, that persists. Oh, but aren't you discouraging us, says someone? Well, I'm not discouraging you, but I'm putting facts before you. And that is why, you see, some of us are not so interested as others of us in decisions. 
Oh, yes, you do decide. But in the light of the Scripture, we are bound to say this. Our Lord himself said it. He that continueth to the end shall be saved. That doesn't mean he isn't already saved. He's saying in other language that the test of the real thing is persistence and continuance. He says the seed that fell into the good ground, that took root and brought forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundredfold. Therefore, my dear friends, the important thing for us tonight is to try to discover, if we can, whether we really are in the true position, whether we have the real thing. You rejoiced for a season in his light, he said, but you're no longer doing so. Very well, then, how do we make sure of these matters? Well, we can do nothing better, it seems to me, than to take this analysis which our Lord gives us here of the attitude and the relationship of these people to John the Baptist. And at the same time, I'm going to take the attitude and the relationship of the same sort of people to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's exactly the same. There is no difference at all. Very well, then, here are the two obvious questions. What was it that made these people rejoice in John at all? Ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. What made them do so? What led them to do so? What is this general interest in religion about which I'm speaking? What is it that can make people for a while appear as if they were Christians, and yet in the end show quite clearly that they've never been Christians at all? What is this? Oh, let me say it again. I'm so terrified in a sense that anybody listening to me should be in the position of that fickle crowd there on Palm Sunday. That I'm putting these questions. What was it that interested them in John? Well, the first thing was obviously John himself. The man. For after all, as our Lord says, he was a burning and a shining light. You remember the other statement, verily he says, I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not arisen a greater than John the Baptist. A prophet, yea, I say unto you, then more than a prophet. Here is a man, I say, who, from every reason whatsoever, was calculated to interest and to attract people. The striking personality. This odd man who lived in the desert clad in his camel hair shirt and his leathern girdle, and who ate nothing but locusts and wild honey. And then they went and listened to him. They'd heard about him, that he was preaching and baptizing, and there they saw him, this rugged, this almost rough man, with his blazing eyes and his prophetic urgency. They'd never heard anybody like him. They'd never seen anybody like him. A strong, an amazing, an unusual personality. A man who stands out from the common ruck and order of men. It's not surprising, I say, that they were interested and they were attracted by him. Everything about his person and personality was likely to lead to that effect. But there's something more than that. For 400 long years, there had not been a prophet in Israel. After the days of the prophet Malachi, there had been a terrible silence for 400 years. And the people were saying, has God forgotten us? When are we again going to get a messenger from God? 
when again is the word of God to be delivered to us? And the news comes that there's a strange man in the desert. They say, is this he? And they crowded out to listen to him. At last the prophet has come, a prophet, yea, I say unto you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, I will send my messenger before my face. There's no question about this at all. These people were, as we say today, intrigued and attracted and interested by the very preacher. It's often happened in the history of the church. Those of you who are interested in reading about great people like the mighty preacher George Whitfield, who was preaching here in London and throughout this country and America 200 years ago, will be perfectly familiar with this. Whenever he preached here in London, everybody went to listen to him, great and small. In America, the same. Benjamin Franklin, who was never a Christian, always liked listening to George Whitfield. He liked listening to his incomparable oratory. And you remember that David Garrick said that he'd give the whole world if he could only say the word Mesopotamia, as George Whitfield could say it. Well, all right. That's an interest in the preacher. But you see, the terrible danger is that that sometimes is regarded as Christianity. Ezekiel knew something about this. You'll find at the end of his 33rd chapter, he says, the trouble with you people, he said, is this, you're listening to me as if I were a very pleasant player upon a musical instrument. You're interested in how I'm saying it rather than in what I'm saying. And these people undoubtedly were thus taken up by John as a phenomenon, as a spectacle, as a mighty preacher, a prophet, the blazing men of God. And they thought that they really were becoming his true followers. They were interested in the men. Oh, I mustn't keep you. But you know, there are many people who are interested in Jesus, as they say. The greatest men, they say, the world has ever seen. Wonderful teacher. Beautiful words, beautiful pictures. The simplicity, the glory of it all. His parables, his comparisons. The pale Galilean. The incomparable moral teacher, the esthete. They say they're tremendously interested in Jesus. I've had people say this to me who never darkened the doors of a place of worship, who never miss this kind of thing on the wireless. I remember when those first uh, series by Dorothy's late Dorothy Sayers were put on, the men born to be king, the men telling me, marvelous, wonderful, how interesting. Yet he'd never worshipped him, he'd never bowed his knees to him. He had nothing to do with his people. And his followers are very interested in Jesus. And oh, we are not surprised, are we? Is there anybody like him? He's the incomparable. He stands alone. He towers above the whole of humanity. His personality. Yes, that attracts, that interests people. But it wasn't the only thing. Because our Lord here in his language makes it equally plain and clear that they really were interested in the message as well as the messenger. You were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. And his light, of course, is his testimony, as he says, to the truth. He bare testimony. He bare witness, he said, unto the truth. And they were undoubtedly interested in the truth of what he said. Well, what was it? Well, it was this. 
John's great message was that there was a Messiah coming. Ah, they said, now then, at last. You see, these people as Jews were all waiting for the coming of the Messiah. I'll tell you later on as to why they were waiting for the Messiah. doesn't matter at the moment. The point is that they were waiting for the Messiah. Their scriptures told them that a great deliverer was going to come. Ah, they said, this man, he's talking about the Messiah. Now, this is the very thing we wanted. So they were interested in his message at this point. The deliverer, this great one who was coming. I said, John, I'm nothing but a forerunner. I'm simply the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way. I'm simply the man who's asking people to come together to listen to him and to look at him, the Messiah. And they crowded because they were interested in the Messiah. But as I have to show you, it was a very false interest which they had in the message and in the light. But isn't it still the same with regard to our Lord himself? People are very interested in what they think Christianity has to offer. In a world such as our world at the present time, that isn't surprising, is it? It isn't surprising that people who are ready to turn to astrology to get a solution to their problems are ready to look to Christianity to give them a solution to their problems. They'll try anything. They'll go around of the whole gamut of the cults. You see, they're in desperate straits, they're in trouble, their world is collapsing. They may have collapsed themselves in an individual and a personal sense, and they've tried everything and nothing avails. Ah, oh, here's another message, I wonder what this is. You know, indeed, this sounds rather good. Come unto me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Ah, I want rest. And I want a little comfort, and I want happiness, and I want joy. Well, he seems to be healing people who are ill. I want physical healing. I want a thousand and one things, but above all, this sounds to me as if it says, do this and there'll be no war anymore. Love your enemies, turn the other cheek. Ah, that's what we want. This is the way to banish the hydrogen bomb. The message. They feel as they first hear it, that this seems to be offering them the very things for which they've been looking and for which they've been longing. So they're interested in, you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. Not only the man, but the messenger. And so it still is that people can look at Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and see these various things in which they're interested, and which they want, and they feel for a while that he's the answer to the question, the very one whom they've been seeking for so long, and they go after him. There's one other factor, and I must note it. It's a difficult one to put into language. Our Lord used the word rejoice. You were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. What does that convey? Well, it conveys this to me. There is something about spiritual atmosphere that can influence and affect people. And yet, it need not be saving. You read the history of all the great revivals that have ever been experienced in the Christian church and you'll find that that has always happened. There has always been a kind of fringe that has come under a temporary influence. It's not surprising. There is something about spiritual power that is, as it were, almost infectious. And when spiritual power is present, people feel it. They're conscious 
of something and they're moved and they're disturbed and they may act and do things they don't quite know why they're doing it but they've felt an influence they've been aware of some strange power in the meeting well now whenever John the Baptist preached that was present he didn't preach like an ordinary man he'd been set apart you know from his mother's womb the Holy Spirit had been put upon him and he spoke with this amazing power and these people felt it and they rejoiced They'd come under the temporary influence of the Holy Spirit. Still more is this true, of course, of the ministry of our blessed Lord himself. So you find the soldiers that were sent to arrest him on one occasion coming back and saying, we haven't arrested him. Why haven't you arrested him, said their masters. They said, never man spake like this man. We're not told that they believed in him, but they sensed and felt something they'd never felt before. You will find that oftentimes when he'd worked his miracle, people would look at one another and say, we have seen strange things today. They'd say at another time, we have heard strange things today. The common crowd said, this man speaketh with authority and not as the Pharisees and scribes. We are not told that they were all converted, but they sensed they felt the influence, the authority, the power. And I say that you can't be in a, in a religious meeting where the power of the Holy Spirit is present without feeling something of it. And undoubtedly these people had felt it. So for those three reasons, without adducing any further reasons, we see very clearly, don't we, why it was that these people had been drawn and attracted by John and to him, and they rejoiced in him for a season. But, oh, I have to ask my second question. Why was it that it only lasted for a season? Why had they ceased to rejoice in John? What was it that made them go back from John and denounce him? What was it that made the same sort of people, perhaps the very self-same people, do the same with the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Do you understand it? Have you ever faced that problem as you've read these four Gospels? People hanging on his words and then the next moment taking stones and throwing them at him. People who'd follow them through thick and thin. And then when he said other things, went back and walked no more with him. The crowd that cried away, away with him, crucify him. Do you understand them? Do you know what made them do it? Do you know what still makes people do it? Well, let me give you the answers that are suggested here again in the very verse we are looking at and in these parallel passages concerning this. The first thing undoubtedly is this. It's a, a definite type of mentality, this. It is the mentality for a season. Do you know what I mean by that? Our Lord uses the language quite deliberately. You were willing for a season uh, to rejoice in his life. Now this, I say, is a very definite kind of mentality which these people had. And uh, the characteristics of the mentality surely must be clear to us. It's obvious, isn't it, that it's a very superficial mentality? Superficial. Just looks at things on the surface, never goes into them deeply at all. 
skims the surface, the butterfly mentality that hops about from flower to flower, never really understands anything at all. There is such a mentality. And of course it's attracted by excitement, it's attracted by emotion, it's attracted by anything that's popular. A spectacle will always interest it, always attract it. Doesn't matter very much what the spectacle is, it'll attract it. It always wants to be there. It's a terrifying thing, this. It's the terrible thing about the mentality of a crowd, you know. The same crowd can be applauding a man one day and crucifying him the next, as it were. And it's done it throughout history. The fickleness of the mere crowd mentality. It's changeable. And it's changeable because it doesn't know what it wants and because it doesn't understand. I needn't keep you, our Lord, put it there perfectly once and forever in those words in the 11th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. He said, you know, the children of this generation, what can I say about them? He said, they're like children playing in the market. And saying, we have piped unto you, and ye have not danced. We have mourned unto you, and ye have not lamented. For John the Baptist came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, Behold, he hath a devil. The son of men is come eating and drinking. And they say, Behold, a man gluttonous, and a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. You see, what our Lord is really saying is this. It's a mentality that can never be satisfied. It doesn't know what it wants. John the Baptist was too severe. Christ was too much the other way. John was in the wilderness. He, our Lord, mixed with publicans and sinners. They said, now we don't want that kind of wilderness business. And then you give them the exact opposite. They said, we don't want this. They don't know what they want. They're so superficial. They live so much on excitement and on the spectacular. They're so emotional that they not only do not know what they want, they don't recognize what they see. For a season. People who take things up, great excitement and then drop it and it's, you hear it suddenly something else. And round and round they go. Always learning, says Paul, but never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. What a terrible state to be in. But there's another reason why this was true of them, and it's this. It was because they had a deep-rooted and hearty dislike of the real message of John the Baptist when they really came to understand what it was. She at first, as I say, they crowded after him. This man, they say, is promising us a Messiah. That's the very thing we want. Why? Well, because this was their notion of the Messiah. Their idea of the Messiah was that he'd be a political personage. And that when the Messiah came, the first thing he would do would be to gather an army to him. He'd then get himself crowned at Jerusalem. And then he'd head this great army and he'd attack the Roman army. Because you remember the country had been conquered by the Romans and there they'd got these Roman governors tyrannizing over them and their whole idea of a Messiah and of a deliverer was a political and a military leader who was going to emancipate them and set them free in a political sense, give them peace and plenty and there'd never be any troubles anymore. That was their notion. So when they heard John talking about the coming Messiah, ah, they said this is marvelous and they rejoiced in it. But you see, John went on preaching and John... Instead of telling them about this marvelous conquest that was coming, 
began, as you know, we are told in the third chapter of Luke's Gospel, to look straight into their eyes and say, Now look here. Bring forth therefore fruits worthy of repentance. He that hath two coats, let him impart to him that hath none. And he that hath meat, let him do likewise. He says to the soldiers, exact no more than that, uh, to the publicans, exact no more than that which is appointed you. And to the soldiers, he says, do violence to no men, and neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. What's this, they said. Is this his idea of a Messiah? He's attacking us. He's asking us to repent. But that's exactly what John did. And they turned away from him. They said, this man, he hath a devil. He's a raving lunatic. He's a fool. Who is this man? We were misguided. He misled us. That was one of the reasons why they turned away from him and only rejoiced in his light for a season when they began to understand what John was talking about. They had no use for him at all and they left him. And you know, my friends, it's exactly the same with the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There are people who are interested in the things that they think they can get from him, but are not really interested in him. There were people who followed him in the days of his flesh because they thought at first when they saw his miracles that he really was going to emancipate them politically and militarily. But when the years passed and he didn't seem to be doing it, they said, what is this? Even poor John the Baptist, as we saw in that 11th chapter of Matthew, even he began to stumble there in the prison for six months. He couldn't quite understand it and said, art thou he that should come or do we look for another? Well, this was infinitely more true of the others. He wasn't doing what they expected him to do. Away there up in Galilee, preaching to poor people and just a handful. Why doesn't he go to Jerusalem? His own brother said that. They said it to him. They said, look here, if you claim to be what you, if you are what you claim to be, why don't you go up to Jerusalem and declare yourself? They all were stumbled at him. And that is why he said at the end of his message to John, blessed is he that is not offended in me. And you see, it's still the same. There are people who are ready to use him as a sort of psychologist. And there are men who are using Christian terminology in a purely psychological sense and calling it gospel, and it's a lie. He's not a psychologist. There are people who call him the great scientist. Christian science. He's not a scientist in that sense. There are people who want guidance. There are people who want health. There are people who are interested in the solution of social problems. And at the moment, there are people who are tremendously interested in banning every form of armaments. And they're using his name. Because they seem to think that he came to do that. That he's primarily a politician. Primarily someone who's interested in earthly reforms in this way. And it's all wrong, I say. And when he really begins to speak to them, they're not interested in him and they hate him. They're interested in him as the supreme pacifist. But they don't like the doctrine of the virgin birth and they reject it with scorn. They don't believe in his miracles. They say they haven't happened. 
that they're scientifically impossible. They don't like the doctrine of the atonement. To them, his death on the cross is simply a good and a pure man, a noble soul misunderstood by a cruel world and put to death. They don't believe that God hath laid on him the iniquity of us all and that he came from heaven deliberately and specifically to die on that cross and that nobody could stop him going there. His friends tried to stop him. He said, I must. The Son of Man is not come to be ministered unto but to minister and to give his life, he says, a ransom for many. It's his way of saving. They don't believe that, this theology of blood, they say. They pour scorn upon it. They ridicule it. They hate it. When you talk to them about him as the judge who's coming back into the world to judge the world, why, they say, it's a travesty. It's a denial. It isn't true. And they say, they say it publicly. They say it in sermons. They say it in their writings, in their books. They say, if you find anything like that put into the mouth of Jesus in the New Testament, don't believe it. It isn't true. It doesn't fit in with my conception of Jesus. You see, that's just to behave as these people behaved with John the Baptist. It's to rejoice in his light as long as you don't understand what his light is. And it's to hate him when you see what the light really is. And that's what happened to the crowd that are set away with him, crucify him. When they really saw him being crucified in weak, they said, this is impossible if he were the Messiah. He'd come down from that cross. Ha ha, they say, thou that savest others, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, as thou hast said thou art, come down from the cross, and then we'll believe you, not realizing that if he had done that, they could not be saved. It's their blindness, their ignorance, their darkness. Oh, it isn't the superficial mentality only, I say. It is this final hatred of the real message. But shall I close by putting it like this to you? It all really comes to this in the end, doesn't it? Why are they thus changeable? Why do they thus hate the real message? Oh, it's because of their failure to realize the truth and the urgency of the message and of what he said. Because we have already seen what he said, I just remind you of it in a moment. What the Lord Jesus Christ came to say was just this, that sin has even constituted a problem to God himself. That sin is the foulest and the vilest and the most terrible thing that has ever entered creation. Indeed, he has said this, that sin draws forth the wrath of God. His message was that God's wrath was upon man in sin. And further he says that he came into the world because it was the only way to deal with this problem of sin. 
He hasn't come just to banish wars. Indeed, he has said that there will be wars and rumors of wars as long as men are sinful. That you can't have an international agreement to stop war. There will be war while sin is in the human nature. Do what you will. So it's all a waste of time and a complete misunderstanding of his message. He has come to deal with the problem of sin. And what he said was, and what he still says is, that nobody and nothing could deliver men and women from sin and the wrath of God upon sin and the final perdition to which that leads. No one could deal with it but himself. And even he couldn't deal with it by talking about it. Even he could only deal with it in one way, and that was to take it upon himself and to submit passively to receiving its punishment from the hand of his own father upon the cross on Calvary's hill. It was a terrible thing. That is why you see him there in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating drops of blood in an agony. Did you think that he was merely afraid of physical death? Well, if you did, you're making him out to be much smaller than all the great saints. Indeed, much smaller than the secular heroes of history. No, no. He shrank in the garden and said, If it be possible, let this cup pass by. Because he knew that if he took that sin upon him, it would mean this awful punishment of separation from God. So he asks, if it be possible, let this cup pass by. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And that is why on the cross he cried out, saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? What's happening? Well, what's happening is this, that this sin has come between him and God. It's been placed there, the whole sin that he's bearing. For a moment he is lost the sight of God's face and it killed him. And what he says is that all that had to happen because there was no other way whereby men and women could be saved. But he alone is the Savior and that his way of saving us is to die for us and for our sins. Very well. These are the inevitable final deductions and conclusions. A mere general interest in Christianity is not enough. You may enjoy coming to this service Sunday after Sunday, Sunday evening after Sunday evening, but my dear friend, I'm asking you in the name of God and of Christ, do you know why you're coming? Do you know what's really interesting you? It is possible to be interested in general, but it's of no value. That's the first deduction. The second, understanding is essential. So if you don't understand what you're doing, it's no use to you. We must understand. And what we must understand is that we are sinners in the sight of God. If you haven't felt that already and know it, I tell you, you are not a Christian. And what interest you have is of no value to you. We must understand his teaching about sin. And God's wrath upon it. 
and that Jesus is the Son of God, and that he died deliberately in order to redeem us and to save us from punishment. We must understand that if we are to be saved. And finally, the only true and sure test of understanding is that we repent, that we acknowledge and confess our sins, that we turn our backs upon that life of sin, which we see is so horrible in the sight of God and which necessitated the death of Christ. We renounce it and leave it. And we believe in him, Jesus, the Son of God. We believe that he has died for us and our sins. We commit ourselves to him. We go after him. We follow him. And we follow him to the end. Though our families may blot us out of the record and friends may ostracize us and the world may laugh at us and call us fools, we care not. Having understood the truth about ourselves and about him, we go after him and we shall continue to follow him. Come what may. We will say with Peter and the other disciples when our Lord turned to them on that occasion when many went back and walked no more with him, he turned to them and said, Will you also go away? And Peter, acting as spokesman for them all, said, To whom can we go? There's nobody after you. To whom can we go? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen.